please to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We will read through verse 21. The Apostle Paul wrote, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so we be- so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Lord Jesus, we pray for the blessing of this reading. We pray that your spirit might apply its light and its wisdom and its learning to our lives. May we be encouraged. May we be helped. May we be corrected as we seek to follow you with all earnestness. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. D.L. Moody was to the 19th century what Billy Graham was to the 20th century. is a very powerful evangelist, a very popular and well-known evangelist. And he had some of his own ministerial students he was discipling and training. And he had them conduct evangelistic tent meetings throughout the city of Chicago. 
the students were to preach nightly sermons as a means of winning souls to Christ. Gave them an opportunity to practice their preaching, gave them an opportunity to practice their evangelism. Dr. Moody personally showed up one night unannounced at one of these one of the meeting places and to hear the fledgling young man preach one of his first sermons. The young man did quite well expounding on the death of Christ and on the cross for the sins of the world. At the close of the service, he announced that everyone should come back the next night when he would preach on the resurrection of Christ. After the people left, Moody said, Young man, many of these people will not be back tomorrow night and consequently have only heard half the gospel. The point being that the resurrection is part of the gospel message. It is essential, it is important that we know Christ came out of that grave. It's not a myth. It is truth. It is fact. A Cambridge scholar known as N.T. Wright has this to say about the subject, quoting him, you might not agree with everything that N.T. Wright has said or written, but here he says, why did Christianity arise and why did it take shape, the shape it did? The early Christians themselves reply, we exist because of Jesus' resurrection. There is no evidence of a, or a form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not a central belief. Nor has the, this belief, as it were, bolted onto Christianity at the edge. It was central driving force, informing the whole movement. Well, what, what I would like to reveal here out of this text this morning is that it, the resurrection is essential. It is important. It is vital to our faith. And we have testimony, not just from, from Scripture, but Paul says there are testimony of those who were eyewitnesses. We're going to look a little bit at that. There is evidence about his resurrection, and most of all, we have the prophecy of his word. And I'd like to speak a little bit about all of these things. Testimony, evidence, and the word of God. Now, to the church at Corinth, Paul was giving testimony. He begins in chapter 15 by saying, Brothers, I want to remind you that the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So he's including the resurrection in the gospel message. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. Paul calls attention to the evidence for the sake of the, those who are weak in faith. Some of you don't, some of you don't believe that the resurrection really happened. Someone's telling you some lies, someone's misguiding you, someone's misleading you, 
the resurrection happened. And after the Lord came out of that grave alive, bodily, he appeared to people. Some didn't believe Jesus was alive. Some said, oh, there's no resurrection. There's no promise of hope. It didn't really happen. We have nothing to look forward to. Paul was giving the testimony and pointed to the evidence. He talks about all who in Christ had seen him. Some of you historians may have heard of some of these, some of these accounts. Uh, we all remember that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And there was some conspiracy about his, about what happened to his body after his death. Some people were claiming he's no longer in the grave or he never really was buried. And in 1887, 22 years after his assassination, his coffin was dug up. Eyewitnesses looked in. He was still there. That wasn't enough. 14 years later, people insisted he's not there. He was exhumed one more time. He was still there. Three days after the death of Jesus Christ, similar rumors began to spread throughout the land of Israel. Only this time, there were no witnesses who could say that they had seen his body. Unless he was alive, walking around and talking to people. There were a lot of people who saw that. All they had to do to stop this idea, this teaching, this preaching, this message about the resurrection was to produce a dead body. And as corrupt as the Roman Empire was, as corrupt as the Jewish community was who wanted to crucify Jesus, they just had to beat someone senseless to death and then, here, here he is, this was Jesus. But the Spirit of God was upon that whole place keeping the lies down because the truth was alive in walking among them. As great a man as Lincoln was, there were witnesses to prove that he was still in the grave. If one of our presidents or another leader in our government were to cry out today to Lincoln for help, there would be no response. If a scientist were to cry out to Einstein for help today, all they would get from Einstein was silence because Einstein is in the grave. He's dead. If anyone called out to Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi, they would find no help. But we can call out to our Lord and our Savior, our risen King. In prayer and in spirit and in word, and we can find help. And that is something to rejoice about. It's really silly how some people put hope in earthly men and women. 
if you look enough, you could probably still find some people who think that Elvis is still alive. If we don't believe in God, it said, man will believe in anything. And that's, that's the world in which we live. We must follow Christ. He is the truth. He is the light. He is the life. He is the living way. He is our salvation. He is our resurrection. Many at the church at Corinth didn't believe eyewitness testimony. So they were reminded of the evidence. Why the Apostle Paul said after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Do you doubt the resurrection? People at Corinth doubted the resurrection. Some of them at Corinth weren't convinced. They even doubted Paul. That's why he said, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you aren't aware of it, an apostle, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, was someone who was called and discipled and appointed by Christ. That's why we consider that the apostolic office is done. It's over. The 12 apostles who served the church early on passed away. They were eyewitnesses to Christ. Many of them were discipled personally by Christ. They were apostles to the Lord. And when they perished, when they passed away, that office died with them. If you find a church where a pastor claims to be an apostle, find another church. The Roman Catholic Church claims that the Pope has apostolic succession. Find another church because you go back and trace the lineage of there are too many breaks. There are too many errors in that lineage. They cannot trace it all the way back to Peter. That lineage does not exist. You cannot trust it. The office of apostle is done. It's been done for over a thousand, over 2,000 years. But here the apostle Paul, as one abnormally born, is considered an apostle. But his ministry didn't start until after Christ had resurrected. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for me for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, 
except in my infirmities. To that second letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul is talking again about himself. He's trying to be humble. Well, I know someone 14 years ago. He's talking about himself. I was called of God and in my prayers taken up into heaven. Like Daniel and like John, he was given visions of heaven where he came face to face with the risen Lord. In Galatians 1, we see a little more detail about that. Galatians 1, beginning at verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of Galatians 1. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He was in Arabia for about three years. When we refer back to First or Second Corinthians 12, this is where he had the visions of the Lord. This is where he was discipled by the Lord himself for three years, just like the apostles were. So the apostle Paul was specially chosen by the resurrected Lord to serve his kingdom, his church, his people. So Paul's eyewitness testimony, talk, he talks about eyewitness testimony of over 500 people along with the 12, along with the disciples, plus his own personal testimony of encounters, probably more than one encounter with the Lord himself. Certainly on the road to Damascus and then again in, on the plains of Arabia in visions and in prayer. Some Corinthians didn't believe the eyewitness testimony. They doubted the evidence and they doubted Paul. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And there is even testimony in scripture. The Apostle Paul, let me remind you, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So all of this was foretold in the Old Testament. It's nothing new. It wasn't a big surprise. Look what happened. They should have expected it. They should have looked for it. And some, a few did, but most did not. The book of Job is believed to be the oldest book in the Bible. They believe that Job himself was a contemporary with Abraham. And even back then, the saints of God had some understanding of what to expect in God's promises and in his grace. Job 19 verse 26, it says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God.
whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So Job, who lived about the same time as Abraham, knew there would be a resurrection. Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake, awake in your likeness. Thus David wrote about the promise of hope in a resurrection. In Daniel 12, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So we see again and again and again testimony in scripture about the promise of resurrection. And in Ezekiel 37, The Lord told the prophet there, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. We've mentioned this before, but most of us who believe in Christ Jesus have received him as our Savior and have trusted him by faith have already experienced a spiritual resurrection. If we were lost... Before we received Christ, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And the gift of faith, we call it the gift of faith, it enables our dead soul, it quickens our dead soul to come to life. There is a spiritual resurrection component in every exercise of new birth faith in Jesus. There is also the promise of a real, actual resurrection to come. But you and I have already received resurrection power in our salvation, in our faith. And it's come from God, received by faith in our own hearts. Isaiah 26, beginning of verse 19. Your dead shall live together with your dead body. They shall rise. So here it's not just a spiritual resurrection. It's promise of an actual bodily resurrection. Your dead shall live together with, the, with, my, body, with my dead body. They shall rise awake and sing, You who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of, his, out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth in their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Isaiah teaches us that there is a coming 
resurrection, and it's going to be very near the day of judgment or at the day of judgment. Today, there seems to be a great need within Christians to experience a sign of proof. No one wants to trust, thus saith the Lord. They have to experience it. We see a lot of testimony about near-death experience. People dying and going into the light and seeing all kinds of friends and loved ones. Um, but the Apostle Paul said to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. But I've heard very few testimony where people see the Lord. They only see their loved ones. And some of these, a few of these, I'm not going to go into the detail. A few of these have come back years later and said, I made it up. It wasn't true. It didn't happen. So we need to be very careful about these near-death experiences. They don't, they don't give the same kind of testimony. Everyone's a little bit different. Everyone's a little bit off. The only thing in common is they seem to all have seen a white light. But then it changes. If you're looking for someone's experience or if you're looking for testimony of someone's experience, trust the testimony of God's word. Trust the testimony of Paul's experience. It is divinely inspired for our good for our counsel, for our faith. If anything else is new and different, it is questionable. You cannot trust the testimony of someone about the resurrection unless it is the testimony of the Lord himself or unless it's the testimony of one of the apostles writing about it. In Luke chapter 16, we have the account of the rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. This man lived in luxury, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the man's sores. So it was the beggar died and was carried to, to the angels, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip a tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in, th in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you, in your lifetime, you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. 
And besides all this between us, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that, they may, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, listen carefully. You're familiar with the text. They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the testimony, the inspired word of God. Moses and the prophets. What do they say? And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And the tragic words come back. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded by one who rises from the dead. You know, we've begun a study of Revelation. If you've gotten far enough into Revelation to where the judgment day comes, you'll see in more than one place it's mentioned that when the judgment of God comes, people still refuse. They don't neglect it. They refuse to repent. In fact, they get angrier at God. transfiguration of Christ Lord Jesus up on the mountain with Peter, James and John and then Moses and Elijah appear in glory and they're all glorified together and Peter wants to build temples to each one of them but then there is thunder and a great voice from heaven this is my beloved son hear him we have to place most of our faith upon the testimony of the word. Extra biblical testimony, extra biblical evidence, it just supports it. Doesn't help it. It supports it. We should be convinced by faith by what the word of God gives us. That is our power. That is our spiritual life. That is our spiritual nourishment. What was Adam's sin? He doubted God's word. We must not doubt God's word, especially when it talks about the resurrection. Celebrating the resurrection, hoping in the resurrection, it's all meant to be so much more. The late John Vernon McGee, or J. Vernon McGee, once pointed out, Martha believed in the resurrection, but listen, it makes less demand upon faith to believe that in a future day we shall receive glorified bodies than it does to rest now on the assurance that they wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It is easier to believe that the Lord is coming and the dead will be raised than it is to believe that tomorrow I can live for God. It is so easy to comfort people who are mourning and say, well, you'll see your, Lord, your loved ones once someday. 
that doesn't take much faith. It takes a lot of faith to say, I have just lost my loved one, but I am comforted by, with the assurance that God is with me and does all things well. You see, though Martha knew from the Old Testament that there would be a resurrection from the dead, she didn't believe that Jesus could help her now at that moment. And we wonder why Jesus wept. She should have known. And perhaps her weakness in faith broke his heart. Have you ever been discouraged? You have hope in Christ because of his resurrection. Have you ever been discouraged? You have help because he is here with you. He has conquered it all. He has taken away the sting of the ultimate consequence for our sin. Has there ever been a time when temptation has controlled your life? Where you had no victory, no confidence of God's help, no sense of his presence? You have the resurrection. Does that not mean anything at all? late Chuck Colson, some of you may be old enough to remember him. He was uh, one of the chief aides in the Nixon White House and was very much involved with the break-in at the Watergate office building where the Democratic National Convention's office were. Some very powerful men broke in and stole some documents, some information. They wanted to Put one over on, making a long story short, on the Democratic Convention, on the Democratic Party. And the theft was discovered. And all of the evidence, according to Colson, was circumstantial. If everybody had just kept quiet, nothing would have happened. They would have gotten away with it. But while he was in prison, after being convicted... prison minister got a hold of him and got him thinking. And Colson started looking and considering the resurrection. And he believed it to be true. It had to have happened. Because he knew from personal experience that if five of the most powerful men in the government weren't even yet threatened with death at all, just threatened with some time in prison, if five of them could not keep a secret, there must have been something to the resurrection because every one of the apostles went to their deaths for the resurrection. None of them denied what Christ had done. So we look at the testimony of the martyrs about Christ, his salvation, and the resurrection. And we find that there is reality there. There is assurance there. There is truth there because people have given their lives. And this resurrection has power for you and I.
They all died believing in Christ when so many around them attempted to intimidate them into silence. Denounce your Lord, give praise to Caesar, or perish. They perished. They chose death. We find people today still being challenged the same way. This next story, I've usually started Resurrection Sunday this with this story. I'm going to conclude it. Nikolai Bukharin, powerful, influential Russian communist, Bolshevik revolution, uh, participant in 1917. He was editor of the Soviet newspaper Pravda, full member of the Politburo. I'm told that his works on economics are still studied, and political science are still studied today. I don't know why. He went from Moscow to Kiev in 1930 to address a huge assembly of, on the subject of atheism. Addressing the crowd, he aimed his heavy rhetoric at Christianity. He tried to insult, intimidate, badger people, shame them into believing in the Bible and the Lord and perhaps even the resurrection. An hour later, he was finished with the speech. He looked out at what seemed to be, he assumed it would be the smoldering ashes of the faith of these people. And are there any questions? He demanded, he didn't ask politely. I dare you to challenge anything I've said. You know what, just pausing right here in this story, we see this kind of thing still happen today frequently, and it's heartbreaking. We raise our children in Christian homes. We take them to church. We teach them about the Lord, and then we send them off to state universities. And within a year, they come home. They no longer believe in Christ. They no longer believe the Bible because they've been intimidated, convinced that they must be stupid to fall for such as this. That's what was happening here in 1930. So he demands the questions for questions. And it was so quiet in the auditorium you could hear the pin drop. And as he looked from right to left, looking for any hand or anyone to stand, One man stood up all the way at the back, made his way all the way down to the front, came up on the platform, looked at Mr. Booker, and he stepped aside, and he stood at the podium, and all he said was, Christ is risen, and everyone in the room shouted, he is risen indeed. True story. We have evidence. We have testimony. And most of all, we have his word. And we need to keep proclaiming it and get into the face of this world with love, with patience, that he is risen indeed. They don't believe it. But the spirit can convince them. 
the word of God can convince them. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and its power and its truth, and we pray this day that you may help us. Be faithful to you as we rejoice in the resurrection and in the hope and the promise of eternal life. May we be glad for what you have done. May we be fearless because of what you have done. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.